So we continue insha'Allah ta'ala with the explanation or if you like a brief kind of journey through this book Iqtida'u Sirat al-Mustaqim Mukhalafati Ashab al-Jahim and as we said, we're not going to even you know, scratch the surface of the book because the book is 800 and something pages. The copy I have, 840 something pages. And so far we did like 30 or something like that. So we, we have a long, long way to go. And it's not, I'm not expecting, wallahi, that we should cover everything. But there are some things I do want to do. I want you to understand where the book is coming from. So we took that yesterday. Where is the, what angle is Sheikh al-Islam coming from? And I want you to understand some of the style of Sheikh al-Islam in his books. How does he present his arguments? How he goes into details? And he sometimes, one of the difficult things about the books of Sheikh al-Islam is that he makes a point and from the amount of knowledge he has, he might go on a tangent. He might say there are two types. And the other type, you find it 30 pages later, yani, because he went off on describing so many benefits from that first point that he made. So it is, yani, you understand how to work with the book. Also, I do want you to understand some of the most common examples in which people from this ummah have been tried with following the ways of the Jews and the Christians or the other religions that exist in the world. And towards the end of the course, or towards the end of the Dawrah, I'm going to be extremely selective. I'm not going to just read from any place. I'm going to try to bring the most important ahkam. For example, when is it obligatory? When is it recommended? When is it allowed and disliked? And, and then we can talk also about the ayad, the days of Eid. I think this is the most important thing, inshallah ta'ala. But still this morning, I want to continue going through just selecting certain paragraphs because I hope it will open your mind to a lot of any benefits later on that you'll see for yourself. So he said, Rahimahullah ta'ala wa qala ta'ala fi sifati al-maghdubi alayhim min al-ladhina hatu yuharrifun al-kalima amma wadi'i. He said, in describing those that Allah's anger is upon, from the Jews are those who they diverted the words away from their proper places. And here, the word used is tahrif, distort. They distorted the words from their proper places. And the Shaykh, he said, There are two types of tahrif that is mentioned in the ayah. One is changing the words themselves, literally changing what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said. When they were told to say, they said So what happened? They were told to say Wipe out my, our sins And instead they brought They added a letter And they brought a word Other than the word That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Told them to say But there is a tahrif That is more common than that And that is tahrif al-ta'wil Interpreting The statements of Allah Azza wa Jal And the messengers in a false way, distorting them away from the proper interpretation. 
And this he said, وَقَدِبْتُولِيَتْ بِهِ طَوَائِفُ مِنْ هَذِهِ الْأُمَّةِ Many groups of this ummah fell into this type of tahrif, distorting the meaning of what is, and he's taking the meaning in a way that is other than the way of the meaning that was intended by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with his speech. And this is a lot, it happened a lot. So if you look, for example, at the issue of Bab al-Asma'u sifat in the people who came to Allah's attributes, and they gave it a meaning that is not the apparent meaning that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala spoke and that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told us about. So this happened a lot. And this is also a type of tahrif. The Shaykh also mentions later on, <coughs> he said, ثُمَّ إِنَّ الْغُلُوَّ فِي الْأَنْبِيَاءِ وَالصَّالِحِينَ قَدْ وَقَعَ فِيهِ طَوَائِفُ مِنْ طُلَّالِ الْمُتَعَبِّدَةِ وَالْمُتَصَوِّفَةِ حَتَّى خَالَطَ كَثِيرًا مِنْهُمْ مِنْ مَذَاهِبِ الْحُلُولِ وَالْاتِحَادِ مَا هُوَ أَقْبَحُ مِنْ قَوْلِ النَّصَارَى أَوْ مِثْلُهُ أَوْ دُونَهُ he said the exaggeration with regard to the righteous and the prophets. Al-ghulu fi salihin Going too far when it comes to the righteous people and the prophets. And he said many of these, the mutasawwifa, the people who are known for tasawwuf, yani Sufism, and the muta'abbida, the people who exaggerated in worship. And they also followed this from the Nasara. The issue of exaggerating with regard to the righteous. He said rather some of them brought that which is worse than what the Christians brought. This idea that they said that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is present inside of his creation and those that said that Allah came down into certain individuals among this creation. But this is worse than what the Christians said. Or the same, or any some of them said what is less than that. He said, وَقَالَ تَعَالَىٰ إِتَّخَذُوا أَحْبَارَهُمْ وَرُهْبَانَهُمْ أَرْبَابًا مِن دُونِ اللَّهِ وَالْمَسِيحَ بْنَ مَرْيَةِ They took their rabbis and their monks as gods besides Allah, as lords besides Allah. And Al-Masih, and they took to, to the worship of Al-Masih ibn Maryam. He said, وَفَسَّرَهُ النَّبِيُّ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهُ وَسَلَّمْ لِعَدِي بْنِ حَاتِمٍ رَضِيَ اللَّهُ عَنْ بِأَنَّهُمْ أَحَلُّوا لَهُمُ الْحَرَامِ فَأَطَاعُوهُمْ وَحَرَّمُوا عَلَيْهِمُ الْحَلَالِ فَاتَّبَعُوهُمْ وَكَثِيرٌ مِنْ أَتْبَاعِ الْمُتَعَبِّدَةِ يُطِيعُ بَعْضَ الْمُعَظَّمِينَ عِنْدَهُ فِي كُلِّ مَا يَأْمُرُهُ بِهِ He brought this ayah, and this ayah is very, very important. They took their rabbis and their monks as lords besides Allah. <coughs> Here, the Prophet ﷺ explained this to Adi ibn Hatim, that they made halal what was made haram by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. <coughs> so they obeyed them in it. 
And they made haram what Allah made halal. So they followed them in it. This also gives you a benefit. <coughs> this also gives you a benefit when it comes to <coughs> the shirk of the Yahud. A lot of people, they get to a situation, they say, we don't see, where, where, we don't see shirk among them the way we see it among the Nasara. The Nasara is wadih, right? Tathrith, the Trinity, and all of that. We don't see among the Yahud the same kind of Trinitarian belief and putting up statues and all of that. So some people might yani, ask the question, where is the shirk among them? So we have to understand that in Islam, the concept of shirk is wider than just the idea of praying to a statue, for example. <coughs> Adi ibn Hatim was a Christian who accepted Islam radiallahu an. He came to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and he had a cross on his neck. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, Ya Adi, throw away this idol. So he threw it away. And he sat with the Prophet وسلم, and the Prophet was reciting They said Adi said Ya Rasulullah He said we were not worshipping them and we never used to worship our priests They were our religious guides but we didn't used to worship our priests and the Prophet said, as Shaykh Islam mentioned, did they not make halal what Allah made haram? And so you made it halal? Did they not make yani, haram what Allah made halal and you made it haram? He said, Bala ya Rasulullah. He said, for certain, O Messenger of Allah, that is exactly what happened. He said, this is your worship of them. You allowed your monks and rabbis to make halal what Allah made haram and to make haram what Allah made halal knowingly. And you followed them in it knowing that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had sent down a ruling other than the ruling that your monk or your rabbi or your priest brought. <coughs> and a lot of the shirk of the Yahud came from this topic. There's a lot of other, they have many shirkiyat in their beliefs, a lot of shirk in their belief. But this is one that you can point to clearly. That they allow their rabbis to give them verdicts and fatawa which go against the, the Torah, clearly go against the Torah. That's why they have the Torah and they have the Talmud. And they allow their rabbis to dictate to them rulings which openly contradict the Torah. Now if we look at this, this is something that Shaykh al-Islam said, people among the Muslims fell into. They allowed their Imam, their Shaykh, to dictate to them things they know that it goes against the Qur'an. And it goes against the Sunnah of the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And among this are groups of the Mutasawwifa from the Sufis, who everything their Shaykh tells them to do, they do it blindly and they have that blind obedience to their shaykh even if their shaykh declares something haram that Allah made halal 
or halal something that Allah made haram. But even what is less than that, we must be careful that we don't allow anything else, Jazakallah. <coughs> that we don't allow anything to come in the way of our obedience of Allah and the Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. We don't even allow one of the great shuyukh of Islam to come in the way of that to the extent that we would be willing to leave what Allah sent down for the sake of the view of a person other than the Messenger of Allah And the statement of Allah we mentioned the ayah in Surah Al-Hadid. He said, And he said, a group of the Muslims were affected by the same Rahbaniyyah, the same idea of monasticism. In other words, you don't wear nice clothes, you're not, you don't marry, you don't any, live in this world, you lock yourself away. No doubt, this is, this is the asal of what the Sufiyah came with before. In the early Sufiyah, before they had inhiraf in Aqidah, before they brought Al-Hulul and Al-Ittihad and all of this Wahdatul Wujud, the original bid'ah of the Sufiyah, what was it? It was this, They brought a Rahbaniyyah that Allah Azza wa Jal never told them to do. And that's why this khilaf among the scholars about why they were called Sufiyah. Like in some of them brought it from a sufi and he will not allowing themselves to wear it, wear nice clothes, wearing like rough, coarse woolen clothes. Wallahi, this is nothing other than the way of the Nasara. Nobody brought this in Islam except the Christians. This is from the Christians. Nothing to do with what the Muslims were upon. As for the Muslims, the Prophet said, Inna Allah Jamilun Yuhibul Jamal. Allah is beautiful and he loves beauty. Like in these people, the, the origin of their bid'ah, before they brought all of these any issues in Aqidah, it was this Rahbaniyyah that they brought. This yani, behaving like monks. Likewise, from the things that Shaykh Islam mentions is, he said, Those who won the argument from the any people of the disbelievers who were with the people of the cave. They said, we're going to build a masjid over them. What did the Prophet say? And he said it, one of the last things he ever said before he died. May Allah curse the Jews and Christians. They took the graves of their prophets as masajid. And now how many do you see, how many shrines and how many places that the Muslim people who attribute themselves to Islam have? And I don't think that a person can count the number of shrines, the number of graves, the number of masajid built over the graves. 
the number of this is the grave of a Sayyid Fulan and this is the grave of a Sayyidah Fulana and this is the you know the, the Adriha, the, the shrines that people go to, a number that you cannot count. Where did it come from? It came from Al Yahud and Nasara. This is from the shirk that they had. They used to build masajid over the graves of their prophets and the graves of their righteous people. But this is something that you see now, wallahi, you, you cannot, in, in some places, in certain Muslim countries, you can't look left or right without your eye settling upon either a masjid that is built over a grave or either a shrine that the people go to. Hatta even if, even if, we say that the people go there to pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And even if we don't accept that, it's not a valid argument. Like, and it's just for the sake of argument, say that a person goes to that grave of a wali or righteous person to make dua to Allah. The minimum that that person has fallen into is the same curse that was put upon the Jews and the Christians. That they took the, the graves of their righteous people as places of worship. From the things that Shaykh al-Islam mentions, and this I brought it as a faidah, wallahi, because I think it's very appropriate in our time. He said, uh, that you see that these misguided people from the Nasara, most of their religion is based on what? It's based on like music. It's based on yani, putting nice pictures up. Yani, that's what their religion is based upon. Wallah, and until today, yani, even hatta the Yahud, the Yahud are the same. Yani, the amount of, for example, music or poetry or whatever it is and that's what their religion is based upon yani many subhanallah he said thumma tajidu annahu qad ibtuliyat hadhihi al-ummah min ittikhad as-sama' al-mutrib sama' al-qasaid li-islah al-qulub wal-ahwal bihi ma fihi mudahat li ba'd hal al-dhalin and he says then you see among this ummah People who, for example, they listen to poetry and anashid in order to correct the hearts. In that which resembles some of what the Christians were upon. But there's no doubt now it became that the way that you come close to Allah is with anashid, listening to nasheeds. And this is from the madhab of the Nasara. The Muslims never had this, wallahi. Shaykh Ibn comments on it and he says that some of the anashid there's no issue with it and we're not talking about some of the poetry that you benefit from or any, uh, some inshad to encourage people in certain aspects like an exaggeration in this anashid now that became like music and you, you, subhanAllah you have even people who used to be musicians they leave their music because they were not very successful in it and then they start making anashid nasheeds instead and they have a version with the piano and a version without the piano. And a version with the guitar and a version without the guitar. The, 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 the guitar. For Wallahi, this was taking all of it from the Nasara, who made their religion based upon this. Rather, even Hatta the Yahud, you see them today, that yani, they will talk about how you find God through music. 
you find you, you can come close to Allah through music. Here, Shaykh Islam doesn't even mention it. He mentions qasaid, yani people listening to poetry. That you think this corrects your heart. The Quran is what corrects your heart. Studying beneficial knowledge is what corrects your heart. Dua and dhikr corrects your heart. But wallahi, like listening to poetry and yani listening to yani music and whatever, and believing that this is what brings about, this is what rectifies a person, and this is some of what the Christians were upon. But exaggeration in anashid is what we see today. We see anashid, there's not even poetry. There's no, not even any poetry in it. It's background singers and any music and people making their voice like a musical instrument. And, and then people go, well, until today you see people going to nasheed concerts to get near to Allah. For Allah, is this anything other than what the Christians are upon? My point here is that you see and you really see, subhanAllah, that there are so many things that have crept into this ummah from what the Jews and the Christians and the Persians and the Romans were upon. Then he said, وَأَمَّا مُشَابَهَةُ فَارِسَ وَالرُّومِ فَقَدْ دَخَلَ فِي هَذِهِ الْأُمَّةِ مِنَ الْآثَارِ الْرُومِيَّةِ قَوْلًا وَعَمَلًا والآثار الفارسية قولا وعملا ما لا خفاء فيه على مؤمن عليم بدين الإسلام وبما حدث فيه. He said, as for resembling the Persians and the Romans, there are so many things from the يعني, traditions of the Byzantines and the Romans in what people say and what people do, and from the traditions of the Persians in what people say and what people do, that which is not hidden from a believer who knows the religion of Islam and what has happened to it. Shaykh Ibn highlights here, there's a big benefit in what he said in the three things to escape being from the people of, any resembling the people of the Byzantines, you need three things. And takuna mu'minan, to be a believer. Islam to have knowledge of what the religion of Islam is. And that you have knowledge about what يعني, happened to this religion. So the first thing is to be a believer. To know your religion properly. So you need to have Iman and you need to know your own religion properly. If you don't know your own religion, how many times is it going to be that you're going to fall into what those people fell into? And you need to understand where the breakdown of Islam and the breakup came from. And here, and if for example, knowing the firaq, the misguided groups, where they came from, what their history is. Recently with Amy, you have been doing the introduction to sectarianism. And in it, inshallah, you've seen, and you've actually seen that this is where this came from. And that's why I remember, I got into a lot of trouble, and it happens sometimes, with uh, yani some people, for saying that the Maturidiyah and the Ashairah, originally, 
this belief came from the Yahud and Nasara, the Jews and the Christians, and from the Romans and yani, the Greeks. And people got very upset by it. Uh, for two reasons, two things they made a mistake in. Number one, they said, you said that we are Yahud, and that's not the case. And there's a difference between being affected by something from Ahl Kitab and being from Ahl Kitab. We're not saying the people are kuffar. We're saying that you people, if you trace your sanad back, where does it go to? Which of the Sahaba held that belief? Nobody who held that belief. Eventually, you'll go back to Jahm ibn Safwan and Al-Ja'ad ibn Dirham and to either the Yahud or the Nasara, the Jews and the Christians. Later on, you'll see the effect of the Romans and the Byzantines and Greek philosophy upon them. The second problem is that people don't know where their religion came from. Then they don't have knowledge of where your madhab came from. For them, yani, oh, it came from the Sahaba. I can look at it, trace it back. Find me before Ibn Kullab, for example. Who held this view? Abu Hassan al-Ash'ari was Mu'tazili for 40 years. He was from the view of the Mu'tazila. And the Mu'tazila, these people themselves say that they are misguided and they took their misguidance from the Yahud and the Nasara and all of that. What did he bring? Any, what did he bring? Except a repackaging of the same thing. And they just they took some, they improved it. And they come, came closer to the Sunnah in some aspects and they repackaged others. And that's it. There is no, the Senate doesn't go back anywhere except to Jahm ibn Safwan, Al-Ja'id ibn Dirham and Rome, the Byzantines and the Greek philosophers, that's where it goes back to. So now when we understood where, how this came into Islam, a person understood. For example, if we look at the Rafida, this didn't come from loving Ahl Bayt. That's a, a separate issue. It came from the Yahud. And that's why if you look at them, they have resemblance with the Yahud in many of their many of their beliefs they have they resemble the Jews in them so a person has to be a believer they have to know their own religion and they have to know how we ended up where we are today and if they know that they are going to see how much of the beliefs of the Tawa'if today got imported from the Byzantines and the Persians Look at the, one simple example in Aqidah about the Persians. The Persians were these dualists, right? They had a god of light and a god of dark. And a god of good and a god of evil. This same belief was imported by several of the Islamic groups in a way that is maybe not so severe or obvious, but it brings the same thing. In the issues of Qadr, for example, those people who fell into errors in Qadr, such that they did not attribute that all, everything that happens in this world happens by Allah's decree and Allah's command. In reality, they imported that belief from the Persians. So we understand that the, the effect of the Byzantines, the Greeks, the Romans, the Persians, the Jews, the Christians, if you know your religion properly and if you know how the different sects were formed, Allah, you'll see that this is the reason. Yani, there isn't really any other major 
يعني affect the breaking up of all these groups into groups except this because if you didn't take it from Allah and from the Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam who did you take it from? man in nasu illa ulaik and who else is left in the world except these people? if you didn't take your belief from the Prophet and you didn't take it from Allah you didn't take it from the Sahaba where did you take your belief from except from the Jews and the Christians and the Persians and the Byzantines and the Greeks and then again the Sheikh says and I want to highlight this he said وَلَيْسَ الْغَرَضُ هُنَا تَفْصِيلَ الْأُمُورَ الَّتِي وَقَعَتْ فِي الْأُمَّةِ مِمَّا تُضَارِعُ طَرِيقَ الْمَغْضُوبِ عَلَيْهِمْ أَوْ الضَّالِينَ وَإِنْ كَانَ بَعْضُ ذَلِكَ قَدْ يَقَعَ مَغْفُورًا لِصَاحِبِهِ إِمَّا لِاجْتِهَادٍ أَخْطَأَ فِيهِ أَوْ لِحَسَنَاتٍ مَحَةِ السَّيِّئَاتِ أَوْ غَيْرِ أَوْ غَيْرِ ذَلِكَ He said, and I think it's very important, he, keeps, he brings the same point. He said, I'm, I'm not intending to go into the details of everything that affected this ummah from what these people were upon. However, some things people may be forgiven for. And some things the ummah fell into, and people could be forgiven for it. Either because it was an area of ijtihad, they made a mistake in it. Or because they had so many good deeds that wiped out the bad deeds and many other things. We're not, like we said, we're not declaring people to be kuffar. We're not saying that they are Jews and Christians. And sometimes a person just made a mistake. Again, it's obligatory upon us to clean our religion, our ibadat, our behavior, our aqidah from everything that came from the Jews and the Christians and came from the Persians and the Romans. He said, ثُمَّ إِنَّ الصِّرَاطَ الْمُسْتَقِيمُ وَأُمُورٌ بَاطِنَ فِي الْقَلْبِ مِنْ اعْتِقَادَاتٍ وَإِرَادَاتٍ وَغَيْرِ ذَلِكَ وأمور ظاهرة من أقوال وأفعال قد تكون عبادات وقد تكون أيضا عادات في الطعام واللباس والنكاح والمسكن والاجتماع والافتراق والسفر والإقامة والركوب وغير ذلك He said this straight path يعني what's the first thing that it encompasses it encompasses the aqidah in your heart And the any purpose which you do something for. And it also encompasses outward actions from things you say and things you do. And these may be ibadat, acts of worship, maybe even customs. And the Sirat al Mustaqim could even extend to customs in the way that we eat and the things that we wear, the nikah, the place we live coming together and separating from each other and travel and residency and he said وَهَذِهِ الْأُمُورَ الْبَاطِنَ وَالظَّاهِرَ بَيْنَهُ مَرْتِبَاطٌ وَمُنَاسَبَةٌ فَإِنَّمَا يَقُومُ بِالْقَلْبِ مِنَ الشُّعُورِ وَالْحَالِ يُجِبُ أُمُورًا ظَاهِرَةٌ وَمَا يَقُومُ بِالظَّاهِرْ مِنْ سَائِلِ الْعَمَالِ يُجِبُ لِلْقَلْبِ شُعُورًا وَأَحْوَالًا here I brought this because I think this is a critical concept that many people today fell into errors in. If we said the Sirat al-Mustaqeen is inside and outside, it's internal beliefs and actions of the heart 
and it's also external actions as well. Then there has to be a connection between the inside and the outside. And this is the belief of Ahl Sunnah, as opposed to the belief of the Murji'ah, who disconnected the inside from the outside. Rather, some of them, even worse, they connect, even they disconnected the inside from the inside, and even the actions of the heart, they separated. Like in what the Shaykh, as he said, what happens in your heart, the feelings you have in your heart, the, the condition of your heart, it necessitates that you do certain actions. And the actions that you do outwardly necessitate certain feelings and the condition of your heart. So this is something extremely important, that the outer self and the inner self cannot be separated. This is the belief of Ahl Sunnah. The outer self and the inner self, they have a talazum between them, a direct connection. So if a person sees themselves falling short outwardly in their salah, in their ibadat, in the way they behave, in their akhlaq, so the same thing the person can realize this came from an error in the heart. Because the heart and the actions are connected to each other. Why I'm mentioning this and why I chose to highlight it and take time on it is because a lot of what we see the Muslims in today came from this problem of irja, of the murjah, of believing that iman is not affected by the actions that you do. And that's why you see, and I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about groups, I'm not talking about beliefs, I'm talking about your average Muslim here. Your average Muslim that you see who has been brought up, told that Iman is in your heart. What do you see from those people? They're very quick to sin. When they sin, they make excuses for their sins. Don't judge me. Allah knows what's in my heart. How many times we see, for example, the sister's, and she's not wearing, not just not wearing hijab, she's justifying that she doesn't wear hijab. You don't know, my heart is full of Iman, you don't know how much I, I worship Allah in my heart. So much, of, so many young people got affected by this today. Because they were brought up being told by their imams and their madaris and everything. And they, when they learned the first kalima and second kalima and all those different things. And at some point they were told, Iman is in your heart. And your actions are not connected to it. And when they got told that, even if they were not like told it directly, but they were told it indirectly, it means the person no longer has a fear of sinning. Because sinning doesn't take your religion away for them. And ultimately your sin doesn't affect the fact that your heart is full of iman. Mutma'innun bil iman. The heart is full of iman. So they justify the sins they do. And they take disobeying Allah to be something very easy. And they get angry when people advise them and try to correct them and say, look, why don't you try to do this? What are you talking about? You know, I have my heart. I'm a abid, I'm a worshiper of Allah in my heart. When a person actually sees that your heart, your iman in your heart goes down and down every time you disobey Allah, the person becomes terrified of what their sins might do to them. 
when a person takes the view of the murji'ah, even among the regular Muslims who didn't take it as a madhab, like it wasn't like that they joined the group, and they just got told that this is the truth. It led to them not taking practicing Islam seriously. And it could be any issue. You could ask them even about the beard, about any issue. Any, they, they don't take it, doesn't become serious now. Because my heart is full of iman. We, we take some questions in a short while. I'll just get to the point which I want and then we'll take Wallah, inshallah. We won't, we won't leave it out. <coughs> he said, وَقَدْ بَعَثَ اللَّهُ مُحَمَّدًا صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمُ بِالْحِكْمَةِ الَّتِي هِيَ سُنَّتُهُ وَهِيَ الشِّرَعَةُ وَالْمِنْهَاجِ الَّذِي شَرَعَهُ لَهُ فَكَانَ مِنْ هَذِهِ الْحِكْمَةِ أَنْ شَرَعَ لَهُ مِنَ الْأَعْمَالِ وَالْأَقْوَالِ مَا يُبَيْنُ سبيل المغضوب عليهم والضالين فأمر بمخالفتهم في الهدي الظاهر وإن لم يظهر لكثير من الخلق في ذلك مفسده Now the Sheikh brings another point from this related directly to our topic He talk about the heart, the connection between the inner self and the outer self Allah Azzawajal sent the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, with Al-Hikmah which is his Sunnah and Allah gave him his sharia and the way yani, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commanded him to follow it. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commanded us to do actions and statements that separate us from the Jews and the Christians. So we were commanded to be different from them in our outer appearance and outer self even if many people don't see any harm in it. I think it's very important what he said. And he don't think that by being different to them, there has to be a mafsada in it that you can see. There has to be something like evil in it you can see. Someone can say, what's the harm if I wear this clothing? What's the harm if I yani, follow this or that? We're not talking about something that necessarily is clearly haram in terms of in terms of the action itself. The person may say, I don't see any mafsada in it. I don't really see anything wrong. What's wrong with it? So here he answers. He said, there are li'umurin. There are many reasons why this is the sharia came with being different from them, even if you don't see necessarily an evil in it. He said, minha, anna al-musharaka fil hadi al-zahir تورث تناسبا وتشاكلا بين المتشابهين يقود إلى موافقة ما في الأخلاق والأعمال وهذا أمر محسوس فإن اللابس ثياب أهل العلم مثلا يجد في نفسه نوع ضمام إليهم He said number one when you copy their outward appearance this leads to a certain compatibility and resemblance in your inner appearance What's the evidence? We brought the evidence that Iman is on the inside and outside. There's a connection between the outer Iman and the inner Iman. Yani it's all part of the same concept. Therefore, when you resemble them on the outside, you are going to bring a certain amount of inward resemblance of them as well. He said, this is something that is clear. He said, you'll end up agreeing with them in certain behaviors and actions. Now here is very precise. He doesn't say you're going to become a Jew because you, any, let's say, copied something from their out, outer behavior. 
لكن you are going to end up taking something from them into yourself because your outer self and inner self are directly connected you can't separate the two he said I'll give you an example the person who wears the clothing of the students of knowledge or the people of knowledge he finds himself a certain amount of and he starts to join them even if hatta he's maybe never studied a single book like he puts his ghutra on puts his thawb on you know he makes it like he maybe copies how he saw the teacher wearing his ghutra and everything wallahi even though he's maybe never studied a book like can you see him even start to take the akhlaq of the ulama and the manners of the ulama this is something obvious right everyone sees it and we're not saying about something necessarily we're not still talking about whether something is haram or not but we're talking about why did the sharia it's a critical point why did the sharia tell us to oppose these people in the outward and in their outer appearance because it does lead to taking on board their behavior in the and inwardly he said وَمِنْهَا أَنَّ الْمُخَالَفَةَ فِي الْهَدِي الظَّاهِرِ تُوجِبُ مُبَايَنَةَ وَمُفَارَقَةَ وَالْمُفَارَقَةٌ تُوجِبُ الْإِنْقِطَاعِ عَنْ مُوجِبَاتِ الْغَضَبِ وَأَسْبَابِ الضَّلَالِ he said when you go against them outwardly this necessitates that you have separated from them and you're separating from anything that might cause you to be misguided or anything that could cause you to be astray he said وَكُلَّمَا كَانَ الْقَلْبُ أَتَمَّ حَيَاةً وَأَعْرَفَ بِالْإِسْلَامَ الَّذِي هُوَ يعني الذي هو الإسلام كان إحساسه بمفارقة اليهود والنصارى باطنا وظاهرا أتم وبعده عن أخلاقهم الموجودة في بعض المسلمين أشد he said the more that your heart is full of life what is life in the heart here it's knowledge right the more you're knowledgeable about Islam truly what Islam is you are going to be even stronger in wanting to be different from the Jews and the Christians inwardly and outwardly and you'll be further away from their manners that have come into some of the Muslims he said هذا إذا لم يكن ذلك الهدي الظاهر إلا مباحا محضا he said all of this I'm talking about copying them in something that is absolutely permissible in itself he said I'm not talking about what is haram he don't think Shaykh al-Islam here is talking about what is haram he's not what is haram and it's finished the discussion on it he's talking about copying them in what is halal in itself and if you looked at it in itself it's halal he said this is when what I'm talking about the outward thing they are doing is absolutely permissible if it were to be not resembling them in his certain clothes there's nothing wrong with it except that it resembles them and nothing and there's nothing wrong with it except that it resembles them that's it nothing else He said, فَأَمَّا إِنْ كَانَ مِنْ مُوْجِبَاتِ كُفْرِهِمْ 
as for is if it is from the things that leads to kufr in kana shu'batan min shu'abil kufr it's a part of kufr famuwafaqatuhum fihi muwafaqatan fi naw'in min anwa'i ma'asihim fahadha aslun yanbaghi an yutafattanu an yutafattana lahu and he said this is a principle you have to take and he, as for if we're saying that someone is copying them in something which is kufr, like, like for example, somebody says, wearing from their religious clothing that associates with them. And this is a different discussion now. But we're talking about wearing something that is, if it was not for the fact that it resembles them, if it were not for the fact that it resembles them, it would be permissible. Even this, the sharia came with the purpose of distancing you as much as possible from it now we're not trying to make haraj for you we're not saying you know we're not trying to make hardship for you and we do say that there are some things that have no association with the non-muslims and what i mean by that is if somebody looked at you they would not associate anything with the non-muslims this as sheikh islam is going to explain later on this is not what is intended for example the general any clothing if someone is wearing let's just say a, a t-shirt and trousers or something like that or a hoodie or something like that like this a person doesn't look and say are you jewish or christian like it's not something associated with them however there's still a point even in this that if a person wears for example what is closer to what the people of knowledge wear so then that person will also lean towards them no doubt like and we don't say this is not prohibited yet. But what we're talking about now is something that it resembles them. It is from them. It's what they yani, have and they wear. And even if it is permissible in itself, even if in itself it covers the aura and you know it doesn't have the, the things that are prohibited in it, it doesn't resemble women. And, but just the only thing in it is that it, it resembles, it has an element of resemblance of those people, it would be enough for you to keep away from it. Jade, we've we reached a new chapter. <coughs> so, inshallah ta'ala, we can just take a few questions and then I think we can take a small break. Inshallah ta'ala, like just 10 minutes to give everyone a chance. I want to see if I was, there were some questions. I know you had one, you can, uh, there were people that had their hands up for a long time. Yeah. Uh, so, just to clarify, would be similar to the way the Christians would they also claim that Iman is completely not and their actions don't even Yeah, 100% Irja, Irja came from the Nasara that's what they believe the Nasara they have Irja that even goes beyond like even you cannot find from the Murji'a people that have the Irja of the, of the Christians and the Christians have an Irja that is on a whole new level and it literally just intisab only just to say Christian you'd be from the people of paradise even if you don't do a single good deed or you don't keep away from any sin. For no doubt that Irja came from it came from the Christians. Um, uh, if someone, if they have a, they have a lot of events, um, and Yeah, 
Tamam, we can explain it. It's a very good, very good point. So people who come, for example, and let's say that they, they, let's not even say beatboxing. Let's just say they're even just like singing anashid or something like that, and they come and say like we're not doing any musical instruments. So how can you explain to us that this is wrong? For we can bring three separate things for them. The first thing is we want to know where does the principle come that everything you do with your voice is permissible. And we want the evidence for that. Because Abu Bakr, when he came in and he saw the two young girls singing, the two jariyatan on Eid, what did he say? The instrument of shaitan in the house of Rasulullah. Sallallahu alayhi wasallam. For Abu Bakr understood, the Prophet allowed the two little girls to sing. He made an exception. Like in there's a, a qaida which is very important. When the Prophet makes an exception to something, the permissibility is in what? In that specific thing that he made an exception for. For any time you want to bring two little girls on Eid day to sing something which is yani, permissible and doesn't resemble and doesn't resemble the kuffar, you have a ruksa for that. Like can you bring a 30-year-old woman? La wallahi, you don't have a rule, you don't have a rule for it. Because the Prophet didn't allow it for that. He allowed two little girls. So the point here is you can't widen what the Prophet allowed. Like people say, see, he allowed those two young girls, so there's nothing wrong with a person. For example, singing or a person being an Ashid artist or whatever. Like you can only allow what the Prophet allowed. Look at Abu Bakr, there's a fiqh in that. When he came in and said, the instrument of the shaitan. That means that Abu Bakr, what did he understand? That the voice can be from the instruments of the shaitan. That's the first argument. So we, we don't agree, we don't submit to the idea that everything you do with your voice is permissible. We don't take that view at all. And we don't see that view to have any support for it in the sunnah, that whatever you do with your voice is permissible. That's the first thing. The second thing we're going to say is that when a person uses their voice in a way that resembles a musical instrument or they use their voice in a way that resembles the kuffar in the way that they did it for this is going to take the ruling from another angle now we don't need to argue the angle of music or the angle of singing this now comes from the angle of whoever resembles a people is one of them or the angle of Qiyas, comparing one thing to another. In subhanAllah, if, if a person is prohibited from listening to musical instruments, and then after that, a person makes the same sound of that musical instrument with their voice, malfaq. Why do we, uh, is it, like you can make that sound with your voice, but you can't make it with a string. That's, it doesn't make sense, right? The, it, those two things are the same. That's the, the next thing. Also, if we look at, Yani what the Sahaba were upon them, the early generations, we don't see this issue of any singing. The Prophet for example, told about one of the signs of the hour are the female singers, right? That one of the signs of the coming of the hour are the, the female singers. The Sahaba were not upon this. Yes, there was an allowance for some limited things. The, 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 that little thing that they hit, yani. I don't know what they call it in English. Not, it's not a tambourine because a tambourine has, it's a duff, but I don't know what they call it. I'm trying to think what they call it in English. Like, 
It's like, and, and somebody at Eid or a wedding, and it's li yani little girls, and they're not saying something which is haram. Yeah, this is, this is, they have an answer for it. They can to take what the Prophet said and widen it beyond what he said, especially when Abu Bakr comes in and gives you the concept that this is haram. No, it's not haram, Abu Bakr. This particular situation is allowed. فالأصل, the asal is what? The asal is what Abu Bakr said. Ma'azif al shaytan. It's the instrument of the shaytan. That's the asal because that's, that's what he, the Prophet didn't correct him in it and didn't say to him that no, it's not from the shaytan, the voice is allowed. He allowed a particular example or a particular situation. You can't widen it beyond what he, beyond what he allowed. And then we say to the people that wallahi, this that what they're doing it does have a strong resemblance to the non-muslims and why is it a person's heart is attached to music they used to listen to rap music or they used to listen to something like that and now they they not haven't left it completely but they want to kind of come towards islam islam doesn't ever accept 50 50. just i'll take half of it but i won't you know islam doesn't accept that you have to go into islam completely that means you have to leave all those things that the non-Muslims used to do. But we say also, if you look at the last point that I was going to make, if you look at the illa, if you look at what does music do to a person, music takes your heart away from the dhikr of Allah. Yeah, it misguides people away from the path of Allah. It changes your emotions and feelings. Right? From the ayah in Surah Luqman, and, and, and you can bring a lot of evidences why any, that, that music affects it misguides people away from the path. It captures a person's emotion. It takes over your heart. And you have to, if you don't like music, and you walk past some music and you change your behavior, the speed you walk, the way, like everything, and it has a profound effect. It's like sihr. It has a profound effect upon a person's behavior. This same thing exists in what those people do. The same thing, Yani. So Islam came with, yes, we are allowed poetry. Yes, we're allowed inshad ash-shi'r as long as it doesn't become... Even people used to criticize, right? People used to criticize too much inshad, too much of reciting poetry. Even hatta in the Qur'an, the criticism of the shu'ara and... Yani poetry is something which is permissible in Islam. Like, and what did they do if somebody goes too far in it? Or if somebody that becomes their... You know, what they do day in, day out. So how about what is... What is worse than that? So these are just some points that I would mention to a person. But sometimes what can be, if what I want to make the point is, when you're trying with someone and they're not understanding the issue of music, sometimes you can go from a different angle and say, just look at the issue of the fact that you are resembling that kafir. So now, for example, I sometimes say to the person, okay, if I took, wallahi, I'm, wallahi, I'm jahil about these people. Like, and if I took, let's say, someone who is a very popular Music, musical artist today and I took all the instruments out of their music and made it a cappella so there's no instruments at all and all the lyrics that were haram we deleted it would it be permissible? for they generally will say no it wouldn't know that we say to them what's your dabit then? like how have you how have you understood this issue and if you say that I can't take one of those kuffar and take the background music out of there and just take the words out they said that are haram, why can't we listen to it? And because it's haram in itself, right? It's not so. 
a person sometimes you can explain to them from a different angle and they could be yeah i understand that whereas maybe a person gets like we say they get excited about the whole issue of music and they you know i, I can't believe it's haram and some of the ulama and like that so it, that's a way you can deal with it and allah is which are most best now what <laughs> Hundred percent. The 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 asal in it is the hadith of Nu'man ibn Bashir. That when the Prophet said, Allah inna fil jasadi mudha ida salah had salah al jasad wakulu wa ida fasad at fasad al jasad wakulu ala wa hiya al That in the heart there's a piece of flesh. If you're if it is upright, the whole body will be upright. So this is talazum. Shaykh Islam calls it like that. Talazum bayna vahir wa batin. Your outer self and inner self are connected. Like and there's a great fa'ida. Don't don't be harsh with the people just to say, ah, you've got irja in your belief. I can say to him, I'll tell you a benefit. If you work hard on rectifying your heart, you're going to find it easier to practice Islam. If you tell me now you find it hard to go to the masjid, just make istighfar. Turn to Allah. Make some, yani, think about what you, where you're going. Think about the akhirah. And you'll find your salah will get easier. Because they're connected. And say to people, your outer deeds can correct your heart. You pray five times a day, and your heart becomes cleaner than it was. But there's a great benefit. We're not saying that, like, we're not, we sometimes come to people like, oh, you know, this is what you have, and you're upon misguidance. And that's true, it is misguidance. They can sometimes say to them, there's a great benefit if you took the sunnah, and that is that correcting your heart corrects your outer deeds. And correcting your outer deeds can have a profound effect upon your heart. People complain about qaswatul qalb, hardness of the heart. What did the Prophet say? Wipe over the head of the orphan. Fawallahi, what has wiping the head of an orphan got to do with hardness of the heart? Because the two are connected. The outer self and the inner self are connected. So you wipe over the head of the orphan and suddenly your heart becomes soft towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then your eyes start to cry. And then subhanAllah how all of those any things come together. So there's a great benefit if you show it to people. And people don't realize. You have to understand the average Muslim. It's like when you have an average Muslim who says Allah is everywhere. They don't understand lazimul qawl. They don't understand what they've implicated themselves with. What they understand is that they're trying to honor Allah. They say, no, Allah is everywhere because Allah is the greatest. For when you say to them, okay, I have a question. Is Allah Jalla fi ula inside of an idol when the people worship the idol? They're like, astaghfirullah. Like, and you just said to me, no, no, Allah is everywhere. You see, like they, they're trying to honor Allah. They're not trying to, they made a big mistake. And they said something, Wallahi, it is aqbah min, al, min qawl Yahudi wa Nasara. It's worse than what the Jews and Christians said. Because the Christians said that Allah came inside of Jibreel and Isa. And Jibreel and Isa, both of them are from the most beloved of Allah's creation to him. Like in these people, the lazim of what they said is what? That... Inside of Fir'aun, that Allah was inside of Fir'aun. That when Fir'aun said, Ana al-a'la, He actually is just expressing Wahdatul Wujud. And he's expressing the fact that everything below, Allah is inside of everything. For this is worse than what the Jews and Christians said. But far worse than what the Jews and Christians said. Like in this, I'm talking about the difference between the person of them who knows what they're saying and the average person who doesn't. Which person is trying to honor Allah. Fasu, he said to them, listen, 
we're going to tell you either Allah can only be in one of three places and there's only three options either he's everywhere or he's nowhere or he's in somewhere rather than somewhere else there's no other option either everywhere or nowhere or somewhere there's no other possible option if we say everywhere so what do we say about the najasat what do we say about the idols what do we say about the people who are worshipped besides Allah but that's impossible if we say nowhere that's atheism so now if we say somewhere where is it befitting for Allah to be in his majesty is it befitting for Allah to be under your feet or is it befitting for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to be above the seven heavens and Allah and then what did Allah say about himself they're scared of their Lord who is above them and the ayat Ibn Qayyim brought nearly, he said to the point that some of the people could argue 2,000 separate evidences came in the Quran and the Sunnah that describe Allah with that Allah is high and above his creation the slave girl when she was brought before the Prophet he asked her two questions where is Allah Ain Allah Allah is above the heavens he said who am I she said, you are the messenger of Allah. He said, free her for innaha mu'mina. She's a believer. The ajeeb thing is when you see the people comment on that from those people who don't affirm the uru of Allah, they say he just was making it simple for her because she was a simple person. She can't understand wahdatul wujud and all of this. I mean, she's, he's just simplifying it for her. He says she's a believer because she said, Allah is above the heavens and that the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam is sent by Allah. So what my point is that we distinguish between the regular people and between the people who really understand what they're saying. We don't say the regular people are like Al-Hallaj and any of these people, any who, the people who said things like, when I prostrate, I prostrate to myself, Subhani, Subhani, and all of that. We, do, we don't say those people are the same. They're trying to honor Allah, but they're not doing it right. So explain to them gently and kindly so that they can understand that what they're saying has lawazim batila. It has a consequences to it and that's the same with the, the issue that we spoke about also and that people and you don't understand the implications of irja and they're not taught like the murji are taught like if some of them you said to them that can a person any can a person be a muslim just by believing that allah exists almost all of them will say no like, and they don't understand that's lazimul qawl, right? That's what you, you people are that's what you people are saying in the end of the day. You're, in the end of the day, you're gonna come down to mujarrad ma'rifah, like Jaham ibn Safwan came with. That if you just know that Allah exists, you're a Muslim. For subhanAllah, this any the, the people don't like regular people, they don't understand. So just be kind with them and gentle and explain to them slowly and show them all of the benefits in following the sunnah. And then that person will inshallah quickly go to the sunnah and they'll maybe it takes them a little bit of time before they realize and slowly they realize and the sunnah is sweet, right? Oh, <laughs> Yes, so this is a really good question. In in the modern time, do we have Ahlul Kitab? So the issue here is is it required from Ahlul Kitab to be practicing their religion 
Or is it required from Ahlul Kitab to have intisab only, like to say that they are Jewish or Christian? So the issue is, can we marry, for example, a non-practicing Christian woman? And this is the mas'ala. Can we marry a non-practicing Christian woman? She's not practicing at all. Like if she has intisab, she says, I'm Christian, I believe in Christianity, but she has this the irja of the Christians, and she's not doing anything at all. But this, inshallah ta'ala, I'll do some research, I'll bring it to you. I have a view on it, but I want to bring you some evidences for it, inshallah ta'ala. Uh, so we'll come back to it. Just remind me about it, inshallah ta'ala. If I don't bring it next time, I'll prepare for you uh, the answer to it, bi'ithnillahi ta'ala, about the fact that when it comes to eating their meat, is it, and marrying their women, is it sufficient for them to just have intisab, just to say we are Jewish, we are Christian? Or is it required that they are practicing Jews or practicing Christians? As for the issue of whether we should marry from, from the kitabiyat, it's an important ruling that can benefit people in some situations. For example, a new Muslim accepts Islam and his wife is Jewish or Christian. Instead of separating between them and them getting divorced, he can keep her as his wife, for example. So there's a lot of benefits in it in that sense. But the problem is that we don't advise, wallahi, in this day and age, and particularly in this age of uh, what people call human rights, but in reality, they're not human rights at all. We don't advise people because of the issue that you cannot enforce upon her what is necessary for you to practice your religion. Now, we're not talking about enforcing your religion upon her. That's not the issue. We're talking about you can't even control your household, even for your kids to be brought up as Muslims, for example. So there is a... However, in some situations, maybe, and sometimes people come and say, look, I've got myself in a terrible situation and I've started a relationship with someone from she's Jewish or Christian. And like myself, I don't know how to get out of it. And sometimes we might say to them, look, maybe the best option is in this situation you're in for you to get married, that it is like the, the lesser of the two evils. Yani. So there is situations, but we don't advise people, my advice not for people to, any, to consider this as a, possible any marriage under normal circumstances because it creates a lot of problems in our time because we don't have any the the social system and the rules and laws that protect islam from the danger of what that person has to your children and to your household and you know things like that like in the mas'ala of what does it take for them to be considered jews and christians i'll bring it for you inshallah with the quotes we just take a couple more questions Shabab, just because I don't want to, is that we don't finish, you're going to say to me that you haven't started the book, Muhammad Tim, and we finished our time. I think we can take now. Wa alaikum. I think it's the example of those who are similar. That's what most of the mashayikh, they say. Like, they say if you've got a couple of little girls and it's Eid day or it's a wedding and they are singing in a way that's not provocative and doesn't resemble the non-Muslims and the words are not forbidden, for there's not, nothing wrong with it because this doesn't have any of the mafasid, the, the harms that, are, that normally exist. And it's limited to a particular time. It's limited to a particular group of people. It's not a fitna for the people. 
any and it's a it's a celebration of what of that particular day like a Eid day or like a a marriage or something like that for the prophet sallallahu allowed certain things you go back to the books of, of fiqh and you see what the ulama allowed in it and what they didn't but yes they do they applied it too because there's no evidence to say that the prophet sallallahu only applied to those two and these two girls are okay but the rest and two other little girls would not be okay rather there's a there's a reason for it which is as we mentioned in our lives which are most best there was a couple of questions in the back So this is like the, the you have to forgive me, I'm a bit jahil about these things, wallahi. He wants to like fade his, his hair. Tayyip, we're going to come to this issue. Like, and what I want to say to you is that there are things that are explicitly prohibited in Islam. From the things that are explicitly prohibited in Islam is al-qaza'r, which is to shave part of the head and leave part of the head. The Prophet forbade it outright. Regardless of whether it's copying the Jews or the Christians, Sheikh Islam is going to mention this point. There are, when the Prophet brings a ruling for you, we now no longer look at. It's no longer a matter of whether it resembles the Jews and Christians or it doesn't. Or if Islam brought it, سَمِعْنَا وَأَطَعْنَا. So the Prophet forbade us from shaving part of the head and leaving part of the head. But the ulama they say al-qazir, the meaning of it is actually shaving. Yani it's not. For example, cutting a little bit short, like some people used to say to me when I first became Muslim, people used to say to me, your hair has to be exactly the same length. And it used to kind of trouble me that my hair doesn't grow the same length, like this bit will always be a bit shorter than this bit. And your hair doesn't grow the same, nobody said you can't have the back a little bit shorter than the top. Al-Qazir is to shave part of the head and leave part of the head, like we see the young kids doing today, they shave the lower part of the head and they leave like a, a step around the upper part of the head. For this the Prophet forbade it, whether it's faded or whether it's like a big step, the Prophet forbade, forbade it. Also what is forbidden is what resembles that. So a person might say, I didn't shave it, but I got like a blade one. Yani, we say it's true, you didn't shave it. And it is strictly it doesn't fall under qaza because you didn't strictly shave it. However, because it resembles, in fact it's identical, if you took someone who did qaza three days ago and you took someone who got a blade one today, they both look identical. So you can't allow one and not the other, so that person is entered into it, anyone who resembles al-qaza. But as for if it doesn't resemble that, like for example a person gets a little bit shorter on the back of their hair, or they have the bottom of their hair like shorter and then it goes up. There's actually a mas'ala Shaykh Islam mentions here in Iqtidha Sarat al-Mustaqeem which is the issue of shaving the hair on the back of your neck but they said it's from the yani, in, that, in that time it's considered to be from the in here and here in, it's from the I think they said the Persians and it's gonna come I, I highlighted it yani. for the point is that subhanallah there's two issues so that is explicitly prohibited then what else is prohibited anything which is considered to be a resemblance of the non-Muslims so if you have like, for example, a certain footballer or whatever who done his hair in a certain way and then you start to copy that, that comes under this, this is the whole topic we're talking about, resembling the non-Muslims and trying to be like them and copy them. Like in a person, there's nothing wrong if they get their hair cut a little bit short on the back and there's, not, there's nothing wrong with it, inshallah ta'ala. And that's something which is normal, right? When you look at someone's hair, it's normal that their hair will be of 
any somewhat different lengths. But there's nothing wrong with getting a little bit cut here or a little bit cut here. But it doesn't. But we're going to come to the issue of shaving the neck, and it's mentioned in this book. But you see how the ulama went into like little little details. Anything like Sheikh Rasam says, the more you know Islam and the more you practice it, the more you're going to want to be different from these people in everything. Well, I heard from Sheikh Al Albani, rahimahullah ta'ala, that when he used to get his thawb uh, tailored, he used to get it tailored with two pockets one over the, this side and one over that side. When he was asked about it, he said that I see the non Muslims when they wear their clothing, they have a pocket only on one side. And I want to be different from them. We're not talking about this being woodwide. We're not saying that anyone has one pocket is resembling the kuffar. Like, look at how much the more knowledge you have, you want to be different from them in every single thing that you can be different from them in. You want to be as different from them as possible. I think we're just very super quick, inshallah, because we have to continue. Sahih, it's very true. It's actually, it's a very, very good question. How do we balance this with the issue of libas al-shuhra? There's two answers. The first thing is, we need to be very specific about what libas al-shuhra actually is. Libas al-shuhra is not being different from the people. That in itself does not make it... I did a, a, a bath on this issue because it was troubling me because my teachers, some of them in Medina, used to say to me, don't wear your, your you know, Arabic style of, of, of thawb don't wear it in the non-Muslim countries because it's libas shuhra. So I did a bath on this, and that qawl is da'if, and it's a very weak qawl. It's not what is meant by libas shuhra. Libas shuhra is to deliberately wear something different in order for the people to notice you. It's not to wear something to obey Allah. Does that make sense? Like if a woman wears niqab, do we say to her libas shuhra? Like, and she's more different from them people, and you could not get any more different than her. And she's covered from head to toe, and they're wearing nothing, any. She's, there's no shuhra any more than that, any. Like, and we don't say slibas shuhra, because she's not doing it in order for the people to look at her, she's doing it in obedience to Allah. So, you have to make that tabi, that's the first thing, we have to remove from libas shuhra that which is obedience to Allah and to the Messenger. Having said that, there's no doubt that we have an option when it comes to clothing, what we wear, and that there may be times where we decide to wear uh, other types of clothing to be uh, more, any, to, to match with the mura of the people, any, what people expect from us and what is normal within the society. This is more common in a Muslim country. For example, if I were to go to, let's say, for example, India or Pakistan, Maybe this clothing would not be very common there. And the people might find it something, maybe it depends where you are, but they might find something a little bit strange, but they have their own clothing, which is Islamic clothing, which is different from that. But it's better for you to go with what the people expect than to wear something that the people find strange. As for the non-Muslims, we're always going to be different from them anyway. But we could choose to wear appropriate, shall we say, uh, yani, I don't want to use the word Western because that's the whole point of saying we don't want to do that. Any, But we could wear generic clothing if we feel that that is something which is 
يعني, there's a wisdom behind it and there's a need for it. No problem. But we don't want to resemble them. We don't want anyone look at us and doubt whether we are a Muslim or not. We don't want anyone to do that. And so there's a certain amount of, of if I don't the word shuhra is the wrong word, but there's a certain amount of being different from them that you cannot escape no matter what. And that's why me personally, I find like certainly, for example, in Bradford, you can wear your thobe anywhere, man. These people are like, they're completely used to it. They don't have any, any they, the non-Muslims are just completely used to it. Like if you come to Newcastle, you can say it's a little bit like maybe in some places people might find it a little bit unusual, but you can choose what you wear. You don't, that doesn't mean you wear anything. Doesn't mean you put a Newcastle United football top on and then you won't, there won't be any issue with libas al-shuhra and everyone will love you. Like, and at the same time, yani, that doesn't mean that we choose to wear that clothing. Yani, we might choose to wear, for example, something a bit longer that covers, something a bit looser. We might choose to wear something that isn't a particular, hasn't got a particular big brand on the front. Or, like, we might choose what to wear like that. But I personally don't believe that wearing the thobe. And my argument was, type. let's just say that I take that on board and I don't wear my thobe at all. But I go out with my family. Does it make a difference that I'm wearing like, yani, uh, hoodie and trousers? Yani? She's wearing niqab, from, uh, she's covered from head to toe. Yani. Like, what, what? Okay, so I'm, like, they, they won't find me that strange, but they'll find... Like, it, do you see what I mean? Like, the qaida doesn't work. You can't go like that. Lekin is true. You should not wear something to make the people look at you, to stand out so that the people look at you. That's not what... Like, that's a kind of riyah, a kind of showing off and... That's not what we do. And this is more important in Muslim countries than non-Muslim countries. Wear what people are used to. For example, I go quite a bit to Bosnia. And over there, they don't. They have a strong influence from Turkish culture. And they don't have, they don't have this is very unusual to them. Extremely unusual. And the ulama they have in the masajid, they wear like a long jacket usually. And they wear like a shirt and, and I mean, maybe trousers. And they wear like a long jacket over it. But they, it's very, very, very unusual. And they find it... And if they look at you, they find you very strange to wear like this kind of clothing. So it's better for a person, if they're going to give a lecture in the masjid, not to wear it, wallahi. Because it's going to make people find them strange when there are alternatives that are Muslim clothing, like what Muslims wear, that you can wear. And it's just because of the culture. And the same goes for India and Pakistan and other places where people have their own yani, dress code, which is a bit different. And this is not in the first place Islamic clothing. This is culture, like this one I'm wearing is Emirati. Like, and it's not Islamic yani, clothing. Yani. It's just uh, yani, what I'm comfortable in because I spent a long time in the Middle East and that just makes me comfortable. Yani. If I, a person yani, goes like that, be Allah knows best. Okay. Allah bless you. Yeah, go on quickly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that that we have to avoid it, hundred percent. That that's even, yani minbab, yani that's the same. It comes under the same thing. Yeah. Uh, there's three actually really beneficial questions, even though we said no questions in the break. Well, there were some good questions, Wallahi. One is, مُخَالَفَةُ أَهْلِ الْبِدْعَةِ Definitely. Like, don't dress and behave in the way that Ahlul Bid'ah behave. Like the Rafidah. 
لكن sometimes you have to be a bit precise yeah like sometimes people will say like if you just wear dark color clothing and you're like you're copying the rafida it's not true the rafida have a way that they a specific way that they dress you can't dress like that the sufia some of them you can't that's for sure it's a very good question asked about fashion and trends so again we haven't got into we're going to do in our next session the issue of permissibility and impermissibility and when is it wajib mustahab and everything like that but there is definitely an issue when it comes to following trends and brands now there's no problem with the fact that you go into the shop and what is like any on trend at the moment is available to buy like you that's what is there to buy right so you buy what is available uh, or you like that particular shall we say style of clothing and you bought something from it but when you follow them you follow their fashion and you make an effort to make sure that you're always within what the fashion of the kuffar is wallahi there's no doubt this comes into this topic that we're talking about no doubt at all that it comes into it because now your intention is not you're just buying what is available like all you know like i went to buy a jacket and they're all long jackets so everyone is wearing long jackets no problem or they all a certain color because that's what they're no issues but a person is now following the trends of the kuffar to be in line with what their fashion is and their trends are wallahi it comes under this topic it comes under this topic because you are now intending to follow them likewise from the brands people say what about buying designer brands and stuff like that if a person buys it because of the quality of the clothing or you know i've i've got good experience with these it lasted me a long time last time i bought it i like the way the material is i hope there's no no issue with it as long as there's not like a forbidden logo on it or something like that like in this two issues that i would be careful about one is you have to understand that what these brands often represent when you have the big like big names like written down the side of the clothing or whatever <laughs> they do often represent things that are yani go against islam for example the you know qwerty keyboard the lgbtqrstu people yani they represent them yani they openly yani do that for example So you have to be careful about that. But one thing you have to also be careful of is again attaching yourself to the non-Muslims. Like let me buy it because this is, you know, this is what the non-Muslims love. Like if you buy something buy it because you like the quality, buy it because yeah, I've had this brand before, the fit is nice for me, it fits me nicely. But don't buy it because it's a name that the non-Muslims venerate it or they love it, yani. Otherwise we don't like like you buy something because it's it's warm or you buy something because it's comfortable or you buy something because it fits you or you buy something because you like the material or you buy something because you think it will last you a long time but you don't buy something because the kuffar love it it's very important like following the trends and this wallahi it makes you like a slave if you've seen people when you follow i'm not just talking about fashion in anything they follow the trends of everything or you know your hair your clothing your everything and you have to have this trend you have to follow this fashion you become like a slave to them sheikh al islam mentions they love they love for you to co- to to copy them in everything there's nothing he said these people would be willing to spend vast amounts of wealth to see muslims copying them so if you buy something from them it's not it's not forbidden to buy things from them but if you buy something for, from them buy it because it's good for you it suits your needs don't buy it because they 
say that it's good for you or because they and it's fashionable to them because if you do that wallah you become like a slave to those people they love it look at all the muslims you know they threw all their old clothes away because we told them that it's not the right color and that black is not on trend in this season you should be wearing yellow so everyone threw all their clothes away and started wearing yellow wallah it's not befitting for a muslim to be like that it's not right. You wear something because it suits you. You wear something because you like it. You wear something for... But not because these people tell you. So this is also a very good point and a person should be careful not to be like those people in that regard. Sheikh al-Islam, he said, and this is now he's introducing the structure of the book. He said, لَمَّا كَانَ الْكَلَامُ فِي الْمَسْأَلَةِ فِي الْمَسْأَلَةِ الْخَاصَةِ قَدْ يَكُونُ مُنْدَرِجًا فِي قَاعِدَةٍ عَامَّةٍ بدأنا بذكر بعض ما دل من الكتاب والسنة والإجماع على الأمر بالمخالفة الكفار بمخالفة الكفار والنهي عن مشابهتهم في الجملة سواء كان ذلك عام في جميع أنواع المخالفة أو كان خاصا ببعضها وسواء كان أمر أو سواء أو وسواء كان أمر أو أمر إيجاب أو أمر استحباب ثم أتبعنا ذلك بما يدل على النهي عن مشابهتهم في أعيادهم خصوصا He said a particular issue may well fall under a general principle Now this is Sheikh Islam is teaching you Allah when you read his books I'm telling you you'll learn usul al-fiqh you will learn istinbat you'll learn يعني أوجه الاستدلال you'll learn so much from his books that you really see the difference between you're reading the books of someone who is a muhaqqiq, and he's someone who really understands this knowledge deeply. He's telling you, when you look at any one mas'ala in fiqh, any issue, you will often find that that issue sits under a general principle. So we're going to begin by mentioning what the Qur'an and Sunnah and Ijma' brought in terms of commanding to be different from them and prohibiting resembling them generally whether this is for every type of thing or whether it is only specific to a certain situation and whether it is wajib or whether it's mustahab then we're going to speak about the issue of their ayat their celebrations so look at how Sheikh al-islam took this how did he break it down what's the first thing he did he said we're going to speak generally we're going to establish that the Sharia came with a particular maqsad. And that maqsad in general was what? It came with the purpose of being different from the kuffar. And this is a fundamental thing that Islam brought. We're going to bring you evidences for that without going into specific rulings. So we're not going to say, for example, what is the ruling of keda wa keda. We're going to look at the fact that Sharia came with this in general. Then we're going to speak about any of the prohibitions in resembling them in general so that we can establish a general principle and then go into specific details behind it and then he said something I highlighted it because I benefited from it so much he said وَلِهَذَا نَحْنُ نَنْتَفِعُ بِنَفْسِ مُتَابَعَتِنَا لِرَسُولِ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمُ وَالسَّابِقِينَ فِي أَعْمَالٍ لَوْلَا أَنَّهُمْ فَعَلُوهَا لَرُبَّمَا قَدْ كَانَ لَا يَكُونُ ذَلِكَ مَصْلَحَ Allah is powerful what he said he said we benefit from following the Prophet in things that if it wasn't for the fact that he did it maybe there wouldn't be a maslaha in it for us 
there wouldn't actually be like there's not actually something in it that we would want except the fact that he did it and what comes to mind as an example in ibadat for example what about kissing the black stone and what Umar said he said wallah you're only a stone and if it wasn't for the fact that I saw the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam kiss you I would never have kissed you and he's saying it's not my maslah that I have no maslaha in kissing the stone there's nothing in this that actually benefits me as a person except that the Prophet ﷺ did it and I want to follow what the Prophet ﷺ did. Why? Why is that so important? Because this makes us love the Prophet ﷺ and the early people. And it makes our hearts attached to this. And this tells us to follow them in other things. So for example, even if you look at the adat of the Prophet the Prophet used to like, uh, what do they call it, gourd. It's kind of like pumpkin, but not exactly. It's from the pumpkin family. And Anas used to pick it out of the food for him and put it on his side, like pick it and give it to him because he used to love it. That one it's kind of like pumpkin, it's not exactly, it's like a marrow or a gourd. The Prophet used to love it, and Anas used to put it out for him. Personally, you might not like it, and you might not personally think it's your favorite food or whatever. Like, when you do that, what, does it ha- what happens to you? It's just the adah of the Prophet, it's not even an ibadah. What happens? You start to love him more, you want to copy him in more things, you, you get your heart attached to his heart. For there's no doubt that. What the Sheikh is going to say is he's saying that this same principle can be reversed with the issue of the disbelievers. Maybe this particular action, if it wasn't for the fact that they did it, actually wouldn't cause you any problem at all. And there's no mafsada in it for you. There's nothing that it hurts you. The only thing that hurts you is the fact that these non-Muslims do it. That's enough for you to keep away from it. Because what is it going to do? It keeps you far away from them and it separates between your heart and their heart and it stops you wanting them to follow them in other things. Hatta, from the things that were mentioned, and I think Shaykh Al-Zaymin mentioned it, if I'm not mistaken. And Shaykh Al-Islam mentions it also. And Shaykh Al-Zaymin commented on it. This issue of how the Prophet wore his hair. So the Prophet Wasallam, when he came to Medina, Uh, the habit of Quraysh was to tie especially if they were on a journey or if they were in a battle was to tie their and to separate their hair and to tie it like tie it up at the front for the men they had long hair and to set, like to, to tie it up into two like a bunch or two bunches at the front of the hair and that's what they used to do in battle and so on in that time the Yahud what did they used to do the Yehud used to wear their hair like without tying it, loose, when he came to Medina. Now the Prophet is between two things. Either to resemble Quraysh, who at that time were idol worshippers, or to resemble the Yahud. They say he let his hair go, he stopped tying his hair. Because it's a greater yani, harm to copy the idol worshippers than it is to copy the Yahud. And then he said, after Fath Mecca, or after, at a certain point in time, when the non, when Quraysh became Muslim, 
he started to gather his hair together again. Because now he's between two things, the habits of a Muslim people and the habits of the Yahud. So now he wants to be different from the Yahud that let their hair go. The point is that in this, is there really any harm or any benefit in how you wear your hair, whether you tie it or you don't tie it? In itself, there isn't. But the benefit is in being different, مُخَالَفَةُ أَصْحَابِ الجحيم, Being different to the people of Jahannam. That is the, that's the issue. Otherwise, there's no any real difference in terms of if you take that issue away, you don't see any difference if you like to wear your hair without tying it or you like to tie it. For this is something you have to, and you have to give it consideration. The Shaykh then said, وَقَدْ يَجْتَمِعُ الْأَمْرَانِ عَنِ الْحِكْمَةِ النَّاشِئَ مِنْ نَفْسِ الْفِعْلِ الَّذِي وَافَقْنَاهُمْ أَوْ خَالَفْنَاهُمْ فِيهِ وَمِنْ نَفْسِ مُشَارَكَتِهِمْ فِيهِ وَهَذَا هُوَ الْغَالِبْ عَلَى الْمُوَافَقَةِ وَالْمُخَالَفَةِ الْمَأْمُورُ بِهَا وَالْمَنْهِيُ عَنْهَا فَلَا بُدَّ مِنَ التَّفَطُّنْ لِهَذَا الْمَعْنَى فَإِنَّهُ بِهِ يُعْرَفُ مَعْنَى نَهِي اللَّهُ لَنَا عَنِ اتِّبَاعِهِمْ وَمُوَافَقَاتِهِمْ مُطْلَقًا وَمُقَيِّدًا This is a fundamental principle now. He said often there are two things. It's not just being different from them. There's actually a harm in it as well as and there's a harm in it as well as the issue of being similar to them. And you, there's two problems. Sometimes you find something there's nothing wrong except you're just similar or different to be similar or different from them. But there are some situations where, or, and he said this is the ghalib most of the time. It's not just being separate from them, there's actually even harms in those things. He said you must give this consideration. Because here now you will understand why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala prohibited you from following them and from agreeing with them in a general sense or in certain specific actions. So you need to understand is it just to be different in this particular situation? Or is there actually a harm <coughs> in it? You will need that later on when it comes to building the ruling any upon it. Then he quoted the statement of Allah He said here also then we made yani, the, the statement of Allah then we made you upon a sharia from yani, this, this sharia that we have given you so follow it and do not follow the desires of the people that do not know here there's a lot of benefits that Sheikh speaks about in the issue of the difference between the kuffar and the munafiqeen in their uh, allegiance to one another. Yani the munafiqeen, I, I will have benefited from it. The munafiqeen, when they're described, they have a common goal to take people away from Islam. Like they have no wilaya between each other. They have no uh, yani, uh, agreement between each other. You can see which one that is and switch it off. 
everyone has to check which one is. So, what do we have? Yani the munafiq, they have a common goal, right? But they don't actually help, they don't actually love each other or support each other. What they actually have is a common goal only. And this, and I was thinking the other day about the role that the Rafida played in collaborating with the Yahud. This is in history, yani. And you could look at it and say, how are these people constantly spewing hatred against the Yahud? And then two minutes later, you see them, they help them. This is because their connection between them and them is a common purpose. It's not love of each other. Does that make sense? They don't love each other. We don't say, They don't love each other or like each other. They just have a common purpose that they are willing to collaborate on. So you'll see them spewing hatred against each other, but then they'll work together for a common purpose. Because the purpose they have is the same. And this is like, this is Sha'nul Munafiq. As for Ahlul Kitab among each other, then here you have anywhere you can have like allegiance for each other and care for each other. And we're all part of the same team. But he mentioned that point, that's a side issue. But I, I thought that was beneficial. Yeah. The issue that there's a difference between the way that the munafiq cooperates and the way that Ahlul Kitab cooperate with each other. And Ahlul Kitab might cooperate with each other upon a certain amount of, what's the word, a certain amount of allegiance for each other. Not total because they still fight among each other, but a certain amount of allegiance is there. As for the munafiq, they don't have that. Any, they have only a common purpose, that's it. The purpose is to take people away from the path of Allah, but between themselves, and their hearts are all separated. We return to the ayah, which is the issue of he said, Sheikh Islam brought this a principle. He said that Muhammad was put upon a sharia that Allah made for him. He was commanded to follow it and he was prohibited from following the desires of the people who do not know and the desires of the people who do not know covers everyone who goes against the sharia. Even the mubtadi', the innovator, can come under this. Anyone that goes against the sharia of the Prophet Muhammad we were commanded to be different from them. And not to follow their desires. He said, he said the non-Muslims love every time that you agree with them. Any single time that you agree with those non-Muslims, even in the tiny things, even if it's just something small, and they wish that they had given a huge amount of wealth and efforts to make you agree with them, even in something small. Shaykh Ibn he mentioned this also. He said, What's the qaida? Al-asghar yuqallidu al-akbar. Shaykh Ibn said, 
the rule in life is the lesser one follows the the greater one that's a general sunnah in life right that the one who is lower follows the one who is greater so when the kuffar see you following them even in small things they become so happy because it makes them feel like you are underneath them and that's why one of the things the Muslims need to wake up to in this day and age is the fact that we are far too dependent upon the kuffar in, in matters of the dunya we are so attached to them and their in everything their technology their everything their expertise their, the knowledge that they teach we are so attached to them and they love this they love to see us going to their universities I'm not saying to you anything we're not talking about haram we're not in the issue of talking about what's haram and not haram can I say when they see people being sent from the Middle East to come and study in their universities wallahi they are so happy because why because the one who is low goes to the one who is big that's why before if you look at the time when Islam was strong they used to come they used to come and beg things from the Muslims and ask things from the Muslims and, and they used to come and you know, please teach us something and if you read there was a letter written to one of the rulers of Al-Andalus from one of the British uh, monarchs if you read it wallahi I, I would bring it for you if I can you will be shocked and he speaks literally like a servant would speak to his master and how he how the British that British monarch writes to him or I don't know if it was the king or the or duke or whatever how he writes to him like a servant addresses his master and he, because why right the, the, the small one the one who is low down of please can you help us I've sent these people to learn something from you please if you would kindly be able to now we came the other way we go in front of these people and we lower ourselves down and we and from the ajaib that I've seen is that we send people to learn Islam from them sometimes I'm shocked in Durham University there are some non-Muslims that are known for like Islamic finance and wallahi that they're Muslims Muslims send people from Muslim countries from Bilad al-Ulama the countries of the Ulama to learn Islamic finance from this kafir Qatalahullah what, what benefit do you think that you're going to get from that is that the level that we went to just know that whenever you do it whatever you say the ruling is you can say no it's not like that he's just you know he just knows something about law no problem like don't doubt that the non-muslims are happy when they see it they love to see you under their feet in every single opportunity and in every single way they love it so whenever you can get yourself out sometimes you're just mudtar, you're in a, you know you're just miskin you don't have a option but whenever you can escape this and be independent for yourself why don't don't let them dictate to you because they love to see you follow them in any tiny little thing even a matter of education even a matter of curriculum the fact that British curriculum is being exported around the world to these Muslim countries we have a curriculum before these people had a curriculum we had knowledge when these people couldn't didn't even have running water and they didn't even know how to clean themselves in the bathroom we had a curriculum and we had knowledge and we had ulama and we had books we studied from why are we ex why are we importing their trash for 
That's a reality. Yani in Muslim countries, we're importing what these people spat out. As though it is yani, gold. The reality is we had it in Islam. So we're not talking about what is haram here. We're not into the issue of saying that this is haram or not. We haven't got into the hukm. But just the fact that they love it. So be careful about that. Try wherever you can be. There's some things you have no choice. And you decide that, you know, my kids are going to do exams. They're going to do, you know, they're going to do those exams. So no problem. But don't be someone who, and in every way that you can, maintain what Islam has, our own Muslim identity. And our, the, the treasures that we have in our Muslim ummah all over the world. We have so many treasures in Islam. Don't give those up like the Yahud gave up. Man and Salwa in Jannah. And what did they say? They got food from Jannah and they said, can we not have garlic and onions? We'd rather have lentils and vegetables. And this is also from the Sunnah of Ahl Kitab, right? Ahlul Kitab are like that. They got Al-Man was Salwa from Jannah. They got food from Jannah. He said, well, it's right, but can I just, I'd rather have garlic and lentils. Oh, like, we cannot be like that. Danny. We have everything that we need, but we've become so dependent upon these people and lowered ourselves down so much in front of them that they become happy because they see that, even if they see we're not following them in religion, even if they see we're not following them in the big things, in aqidah, in worship, but they get so happy to see us follow them in even a small thing. And the statement of Allah The statement of Allah The Jews and Christians will never be happy with you until you follow their religion. Say the guidance of Allah, this is guidance. And if you were to follow their desires after what has come to you from knowledge, you would not have any protector. Or any helper against Allah. Sheikh Islam he said, Fanzur Kaifa Kala fil Khabari Milletahum Wakala fin Nahi Ahwaahum. Lianal Kaum Layer Rona Illa Bittiba il Milleti Mutlaka. Was Zajar Waka and it Tibari Ahwaahim fi Kalilin Al Kathir. Wallah, what Sheikh Islam said, this is. Yani, we now, Sheikh Islam, the, the scholar of Tafsir, yani, he went into Tafsir. He brought a faida from this ayah. He said, do you notice? Allah said about the Jews and Christians, He informed us that they will never be happy until you follow their religion. That's because the end result is, they, what they want is you to follow their religion, right? But what are you prohibited from? Are you prohibited from following their religion? Or are you prohibited from agreeing with them in anything? وَلَا إِنِ so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala prohibited you from following them in the tiniest thing so that the goal that they have of you following them in the greater thing is not achieved. Does that make sense? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told us they want you to follow their religion. Okay, following their religion is ridda, right? Apostasy. They want you to become a Jew or a Christian. That's apostasy. Did Allah say, so don't follow them in their religion? No, He said, don't follow anything from their desires. So what is prohibited is following them in the smallest thing 
or in the biggest thing because the end result is they want you to follow their religion and that's why if you look at how we as Muslims and I'll mention this is the last point and we'll stop for today or we'll stop for this lesson anyway and what I wanted to say to you is if you look at how today we have assimilated into any among the non-Muslims into their communities and and the way that we behave and you see some Muslims will do everything possible to assimilate they will change their name they will change their habits they will change everything possible to assimilate take it as a principle the Jews and Christians will not love you until you accept their religion so everything you're doing to assimilate with them is just facilitating that goal of this now here someone could say Muhammad you you know this is rough man this is harsh I'm not saying not to mix with them we mix and we mix with them for what for da'wah to call them to the truth like, wallah, we don't assimilate this thing that they have about you need to come to the UK and accept British values explain to me what are British values I'm not gonna why should I accept British values I was born here and I've been wajed my mom and dad and grandparents and great-grandparents and I don't want to accept British values but why should we force someone to come to this country and accept British values for and ultimately wallahi whatever they accept they're never going to be happy with you sometimes wallahi you want it you don't want it I mean you would cry but sometimes you would laugh how much a person would be willing to compromise their Islamic identity to the point where they literally completely take on board everything the kuffar do and still the kuffar call them by their names are racist towards them still because wallahi they're never going to be happy with you until you say I'm a Christian as long as you say I'm a Muslim even if you're not praying even if you do everything that they do even if you drink with them even if you do haram with them until you say I am a Christian they will never be happy with you and that's why these people reality is that we see these people running after the kuffar and they change everything about themselves and still the kuffar look at them like you are lower than us and you're still a, you, you still have some connection to islam so we don't follow them in anything and we don't follow that pressure to assimilate yes we can be beneficial to our society no doubt we're not saying that we're not we're not saying a, a statement that is extreme we can benefit our society we can be a positive force in our community but within the limits set by islam we do not have to take on board these people's manners or their values or their akhlaq or their opinions or the way they deal with people or their mu'amalat or their ibadat we don't see any of it we have already what is better do you want to take what is good and replace it for something that's less good so don't feel the pressure to conform because first of all conforming is futile Whatever you do to conform to these people, they will never be happy with you, Allah. That's why the person says, you know, I've changed my name. They've ch they started, they marry from them. They yani, drink, go out drinking in the pub with them. Still, the people call them racist names and yani, things about Islam and things about where their ethnic background and whatever. Because until you stand up and say, I'm a Christian, they will never be happy with you. But there's no point. You may as well stick upon the, the khair that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given you and accept it. And the ajeeb thing is, and this is really honestly last, last issue. What I'm amazed by is the reverts who accept Islam. Wallahi, we see people from who grew up with this. They grew up drinking in the pub and they grew up yani, with all of these bad, this bad akhlaq and these values and everything. And they left it for Islam. 
they left it for Islam. So shouldn't we have some shame that we're willing to leave Islam for what these people have and those people are willing to leave what they have for Islam? For me, when people say that Islam doesn't respect the woman, we just have one point to make. Without any ayat and hadith, we want to know why so many sisters are reverting to Islam. What is it? What have the Muslims done sihr upon them, yani, that they are... Like, why are they wearing hijab? Nobody told them to wear hijab. Nobody told them to cover. Nobody told them to have haya. Nobody told them to stop these habits and the bad akhlaq. Why are they doing it for? Subhanallah, if you don't... And if we as Muslims don't separate ourselves from the non-Muslims, wallah, Allah will replace us from those people. And that's the ajib. Yani that's subhanallah, sunnatullah. That Allah will not just replace you. Allah will replace you from those people. Allah will take those people and make them better than you. And bring them into this religion. Because this religion belongs to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And Allah gives it to whoever he wants as a favor and a grace from him. So be certain, wallahi, if we walk away from our Islamic identity and our Islamic etiquette and we resemble these people, Allah will take from them people that will replace us. And then it will not be any like we were. So a person needs to any realize that and take benefit from it. Uh, so we have yani, done terribly badly in terms of getting through the book. Like, and I am aware, I am gonna, what I will do is I've been kind of going like every page I've been giving you a fa'idah, I'll stop doing that now. What I will do instead, inshallah ta'ala, is just look at the most important points, like the ahkam of when is it wajib, when is it mustahab, and the issues of the ayad. We'll try to focus upon those points, inshallah ta'ala. It's just that there's so much benefit, yani. that's the books of Sheikh Islam. Like, you read this book, wallah, you could teach usul fiqh from this book. You could teach it as a book of usul fiqh, like how does he make istimbat of the adilla? How does he bring what's the amr for? And the, how does he decide what's wajib and mustahab? You could teach tafsir from it. How does he make tafsir? How does he approach the ayat? There's a lot of benefit in it. Yani. For subhanAllah, we, we try our best, inshallah, to at least give you an idea of the book. Uh, we give everyone a break now. We can maybe, as I'm walking out, we can do some you know, little questions people had. But I, I'm going to let everyone go now because we're, past, we're way past the time. <laughs>